Welcome to Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present and future trends of the humanities and social sciences. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. As you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. As always, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. My guest today, Patricia Sway, is the Program Officer for Public Knowledge at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which she joined in 2016. Previously, she worked in the libraries at Penn State University, where she co-founded the Department of Publishing and Curation Services, and also at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she was Program Manager for Grant Initiatives funded by the Library of Congress and by the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Originally a Russian literature scholar, Patricia holds a PhD from Yale University in Slavic languages and literatures. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. You've been with the Mellon Foundation for just over four years now. Uh It's been a time of change. Uh, The foundation provides $300 million per year or so in funding for the arts and humanities, but has now pivoted quite explicitly as of just a few months ago to a new strategic direction and focus on social justice. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for you to be a part of this transition? Oh, um, it is, it's quite significant um, because in most of my career, as a librarian, I was a librarian before I came to the Mellon Foundation, even though there were certainly diversity-driven initiatives at my library, or there have been in the library and information science profession over the years, my job has not been directly tied, I would say, you know, to, to diversity, equity, inclusion, um, or framework um, that serves that explicitly. And so to be a part of this change at the foundation is, I would say, of both professional and personal significance. We have a leader who is committed to uh, ensuring that, you know, our our circle of grantees widens even more as a result of this this shift. And I I know that we often talk about it as a pivot and a shift, but I, I think it's also a widening, a broadening that to me um, can also, you know, be more, I guess, compelling if we think of it as broadening um, and, uh, you know, as, as a part of, the, of uh, making the shift. But yeah, it, it, is def- it has personal and professional significance. And it's, it's been interesting and um, actually kind of, I don't know how to put it except enlivening, I suppose, um, invigorating. Um, to see, you know, those those two um, aspects come together, become connected, because what I'm trying to accomplish professionally by engaging new grantees and new communities um, to support, it's, it's both professionally and personally 
gratifying. So you mentioned new grantees and working with new communities. What sorts of specific new communities do you foresee Mellon working with, or what what other specific changes uh, do you think we can expect to see in the types of projects that Mellon will seek to fund? Well, I can speak from you know from my program, but I think. Um, you know, in general, there are, there's going to be, this change will be felt, you know, generally across the foundation. So um, new grantees in the sense of, you know, for example, we have been funding academic libraries as the former scholarly communications program. I would say academic libraries and the archives um, at uh, higher education institutions were the primary recipients of our grant funds. And I don't see that necessarily changing, but I think we will be engaging different higher education institutions, different kinds of archives, and we will be more mindful, I think, of organizations that have not been our, in our midst, but are doing some things that are changing how, for example, technology or archives should be understood, accessed, um, designed used and so forth. So one example of that is uh, our community-based archives initiative. Um, And that did start when the program was the scholarly communications program, but it's, you know, become even more relevant to public knowledge program as we are trying to broaden the understanding of what kinds of archives um, should be made available. Um, And these are archives that uh, document the histories of marginalized uh, people, people who have been oppressed based on race, gender, sexuality, ability, religion, and so forth. So we're trying to be mindful that there are lots of stories out there that have not been able to be told because these kinds of materials are not traditionally collected by mainstream institutions. And while we have made some grants that have supported some of these archives, such as in Latin America, for example, um, or in parts of the rural South. It's always been through a higher education institution. And so now what we're trying to do is support them directly. So that's an example of community-based archives. Um, Another example uh, is public libraries. We have supported institutions like the New York Public Library, which is, um, I think, you know, a research library as well. Uh, so not surprisingly, um, the Scarlet Communications Program had has made grants um, to, or did make grants to NYPL. We're also increasingly interested in the role that public libraries can play in communities. You know, as a funder, I don't think this is too different from what uh, the IMLS has done, what the NEH has done. But um, Mellon is interested in serving a broader Um, through the Public Knowledge Program, certainly serving a broader swath of the population. We know that public libraries are a major part of that. And so we're interested in seeing what possibilities there could be for us to complement, for example, the ways that IMLS and NEH um, have funded those kinds of institutions um, and seeing, you know, where, where could we, where could our support make a difference, particularly in terms of the humanities um, and the arts. So um, those are two examples, public libraries and community-based archives. And I'll also add that because, you know, it's not unusual that technology grants are largely about new platforms, new tools, about innovation in terms of access or preservation or publishing, 
And I think our program is going to increasingly be about how do we um, rethink technology so that it's not always about creating the new, but also maintaining, sustaining what is already existing and in heavy use, but may not have the robust support that uh, it did um, in the early years of its funding, let's say. Attached to that, I think we also want to be mindful of the way that technology has not always been just, that social justice has not been at the forefront of a lot of technology design and development. And so we're interested in working with groups that are doing some different things or doing some things to challenge that, that uh, history of technology. Patricia, whenever things change, especially when money actually shifts, in other words, there's real change, those who may have uh, benefited from the system as it was uh, may, may, may question, may, may be upset uh, with the reallocation of resources. What have been some of the, um, perhaps, the questions or the, or the negative feedback that you've received about this shift? Oh, um, you know, I realize that it's, it's been a, you know, only a few months since the foundation publicly announced, um, this, uh, turn in our, um, our focus. It's really a framework, a new framework. Um, but I would say that we have not had any, um, negative feedback, um, in our program area. I think, you know, I think maybe across the foundation, um, grantees are curious about what this means for future support of their organization or their institution. That's that's not unsurprising, I think, or that's not surprising. Sorry, um, but uh, I would say that you know the the reception um, has been positive. Now, that's not to say that we haven't received inquiries um, that you know at at their base don't align with um, this uh, new framework. So in those cases, you know, we do have to say that our priorities um, are this and that, and, you know, this, this doesn't really align with those priorities. And, you know, to be truthful, too, we have to be, we've always been careful about what we fund, how we fund, where we fund. Um, this is just a different way, I think, of being careful. So I would say the feedback has not been negative. If anything, the feedback has been about curiosity, um, you know, uh, wanting a greater understanding or a more nuanced understanding of um, how Mellon is shifting and, and what the kinds of efforts that Mellon is curious in funding. You know, I, I think that that is healthy. I think it's healthy for, for current and past grantees to be curious and, and to be interested in, you know, in how they could change um, as institutions relative to what's not only what's happening at the Mellon Foundation and how uh, we are, you know, um, doing this new kind of um, grant making or, or a new frame to our grant making, but in terms of what's happening in the world too, you know, it seems that there there is some momentum building that could see some real change in the future. So mm -hmm. I'd say curiosity. It's it's more about curiosity and, and less about negative feedback. What's been most satisfying to you personally about this widening and refocusing? Well, I think what's satisfying to me personally is um, that there's the possibility of more organizations being able to participate, you know, in changing um, the way that we understand the humanities and arts, the way that we apply them, 
the way that uh, society can engage in them. And so I really, I think what really means a lot to me is the fact that, you know, as a private uh, foundation, we don't ordinarily run, you know, open calls the way that, for example, the National Endowment for the Humanities does. Although we do, we are starting to have some examples of those kinds of open um, calls for proposals. But by and large, you know, it's us being in the field, building relationships, um, understanding uh, what are the types of changes that need to happen and could happen based on our funding. So what's really satisfying is being able to bring more organizations into the mix and into the fold and learn from them. Um, even, as I said, even before this um, sort of official announcement and as the scholarly communications program, we had started to do some different different kinds of grant making and support different organizations, including the community-based archives I spoke about earlier. But in doing that in the beginning, it has been a true learning experience, getting to understand your organizations, getting to understand what their capacity is and where the gaps are in that capacity, and also understanding that um, for some of these organizations, uh, especially the smaller ones, it may not be a question of supporting a project, a new software development project or digitization project, but actually come down to how do we help this organization be sustainable? So I, I think it's, you know, about how many we can bring into the fold um, of our grant making and also about the different kinds of efforts that we can, we can support as a result of bringing different kinds of institutions into the fold. Pulling back the lens here and, and looking nationally, where do you see the capacity gaps overall with regard to our cultural heritage organizations? So one thing that has been interesting to observe and to hear about from colleagues in the field and uh, to read about since the pandemic began and since closures had to happen, especially of libraries and uh, archives and museums, is the is the challenges in adapting the organization's workforce, these organizations' workforce um, or staff um, to a more virtual or digital service delivery. Um, I, you know, certainly not familiar with all the details, but libraries are spaces, libraries are place, are organizations where space has been an increasing uh, opportunity. So it's not unusual to be on a campus like a higher education, a higher education institution campus and go to the library and see that it's been renovated in the last five or so years mm -hmm. and, and that the spaces are designed more for collaborative assignments, projects, group projects, uh, that they are outfitted with, you know, state of the art technology. Um, but the thing is you have to be there. And there are even, you know, applications that tell you, tell students and faculty when a place or technology is available to use in a library. So, you know, it's been fascinating to see that libraries have had to adapt and their place, their space is no longer available for those kinds of activities. Everything is, has, you know, almost everything has gone virtual. Um, and what does that mean in terms of service delivery, in terms of collection uh access, um, especially if they're not already digitized or born digital. So I think that's where a huge gap is, understanding how to, you know, turn your library into something, into a, an organization or um, a service or set of programs that can be accessed 
almost wholly digitally. And, you know, what does this mean for catalogers, for instance? What does this mean for access services like public services librarians who are on the floor, um, on the front lines? The front lines are now digital. So, you know, it, it has seemed that there's a bit, there's been a, a recognition of even more adaptation than maybe there was previously. And then I think also the, a gap is, you know, the user on the user side, how many users um, that libraries serve actually can access collections, other services digitally. Not everyone has the privilege of broadband access or people have it via their phone, but not through a laptop or other kind of um, uh, a computing machine. So, so I think it has to do with the gaps I, I'm seeing have to do a lot with, you know, with what is able to take place or be conducted virtually um, or digitally. And it's both a user side and um, a server side, so to speak, um, issue. How do you think those sorts of capacity gaps can be addressed at scale? I mean, especially thinking about working with all of these many smaller and more local organizations like you've been talking about? Oh, yeah. I don't know that I have um, a, an answer um, to the scale question, to be honest with you. And I, I worry that if, if we were to address it, you know, through even more technology, let's say, um, we could be losing face or losing sense of, you know, what the priorities are. Although I, I, you know, maybe one way to address that is somehow equipping uh, our users, you know, students and faculty, for example, if we're talking about an academic library, uh, with more uh, training, I suppose, more um, capacity to, you know, know um, where to, to, whom to consult, where to look uh, for help uh, in in the library that's, you know, the version of the library that's online, but um, you know, I, I actually think it's a strategic question. You know, now that we know what COVID-19 can do, with what a pandemic can do to organizations that rely on in-person interactions and services, what does the world that comes after the pandemic need to look like? How do we need to um, address those, those weaknesses and the, you know, the challenges that emerged as a result of, of not being able to be where we normally are to meet our users. I do wonder if, you know, this means that there'll be uh, more of a demand for, for librarians or staff who can, you know, who have facility um, and the skill sets and the temperament, frankly, um, to, to be, you know, more virtual or more digital. It's not a great answer. I mean, I think it's just a, um, it's something that I feel the profession is going to have to think about in terms of meeting, you know, the scale, the scale issue, the scale problem. It's also interesting because, of course, you bring up the the current COVID-19 pandemic that we're in. That has certainly also brought to light a number of equity issues. Mm -hmm. What have been the most important ones that you've learned just in the last few months yourself looking at where we are right now? Well, certainly, um, as a result of the, the pandemic and the need to socially distance, the concerns about travel, we have certainly seen in our grantee organizations 
lots of uh, um, adaptation in terms of holding uh, workshops virtually, for example. But that doesn't always work if, for example, you are a tribal community and um, you don't have broadband access where you are. So some of these um, efforts um, have had to be postponed until, you know, delayed until uh, the, the pandemic has died down. Or there have had to be accommodations made in terms of finding a location uh, where um, a workshop can be accessed virtually. So I would say that um, the challenges um, in equitable access have had a lot to do with, you know, being able to have the equipment needed to access a workshop virtually or participate in one virtually. The fact that, you know, because of the travel issues, um, I think it's harder when, you know, people have really had to adapt. For example, if you can try, a lot of the travel that happens on our grants is because collaborators come together, they work in the same room, they um, are able to be more productive um, at those times. Um, uh, and it's like very focused, right, productivity. And what has to happen now is, you know, they need to do this virtually. Um, uh, and I have discovered, even through my own experiences serving on a, a professional association committee, for example, that it's possible to co-work during a Zoom call. And I imagine that, you know, our grantees have had to find this is, this is the new world or a temporary new world. This is what they have to do as well. And so uh, I would say it has to do a lot with digital access, um, you know, the, the lack of um, equity. And yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything um, else. You know, the other thing, too, is some of our community-based archives um, that were awarded funds last year we're doing digitization projects. And so what is, uh, what I've heard from them directly that they've had to do is uh, someone has a scanner at their home that's um, a suitable scanner and can do the scanning um, at the, you know, the quality needed. And so uh, another colleague will drop off the archival materials on the front porch, let's say, and the, the colleague who lives um, in the house with the scanner um, can uh, can scan uh, from those materials. So there's a lot of different um, approaches to adapting to um, the changes um, uh, that I that we've been seeing. But I would say it's when it comes to equity, it 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 has a lot to do with um, whether accessing and conducting uh, workshops virtually, for example, um, is is possible or not. Yeah, I don't know if that is is a sufficient response. Looking at the overall picture of particularly humanities research, humanities scholars in contemporary American culture certainly seem to have few sources of public funding for their work. Maybe mm -hmm. few sources of few sources of funding. Period. Many of them would say. Mm -hmm. What is your perspective on public funding for humanities research? So public funding uh, from organizations, for example, like um, the NEH, NEA, and IMLS, um, NSF, and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. correct? Okay. Yes. Um, so, well, I, you know, uh, I think that I've always seen our, my colleagues in the public grant funding realm as doing complementary uh, things. Um, you know, they, 
What's been interesting is we have, for example, partnered with um, the NHPRC, which is in the National Administration uh, for Records and Archives, on efforts that involve public calls. And so, um, you know, uh, we've been able to extend our, our capacity in that sense um, by partnering with, uh, with our public funder colleagues. I think public uh, funding for the arts and humanities is crucial. And here's one, you know, one reason why is because it's funding by example. It is supporting public good by example, by the example of um, a federal government. And we need those kind, more of those kinds of examples um, to, to, for our local communities um, to see national humanities councils get uh, quite a bit of um, public funding, whether it's federal funding or um, regional funding. But I think in order to promote a a, a sense of a public good and um, a sense of um, you know flourishing together as a society because we're collectively invested um, in the arts and the humanities is so important. I I would hate for you know um, and maybe hate is too strong a word, but I would hate for private funders to be the only ones doing this um, because we. We need that voice um, from the public sector, and also, you know, it just it it makes the world of philanthropy much more vibrant, um, complementary, in some ways complete. If we have both public and private, you know, kind of playing together in this, you know, philanthropy sandbox to support the arts and the humanities. So um, I, I think that's very high level answer. I I just can't imagine a world without it, even though I know that. It's often been threatened, um, you know, certainly during this administration and, and during previous administrations. Yeah, it certainly seems the case that when public funding is not as robust as it could be, that presumably gives foundation philanthropists outsized voices in the research agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How, how does the system ensure its own integrity? The system of private philanthropy? Or, um, or of funding in general, funding in general, and and particularly of yeah, particularly of private philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm going to probe a little bit. So, when you say integrity, can you um, expand on that? Well, um, thinking about either the uh, the, I mean, certainly there is an academic freedom of scholars to pursue, you know, set and pursue their own agendas for research, but but what scholars choose to investigate, uh, what they where they focus their efforts, mm-hmm. um, certainly often is, for very practical reasons, that which they can get funding for. I see what you mean, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so I think the way that we try to go about our funding is having an understanding of the problems that need to be solved in order to improve various aspects of the of of our society through the arts and humanities i would say that having a problem based approach to funding is it's it's very central and so and it's true that you know maybe the you know there are foundations that see a certain problem as a problem and others that don't see it as a problem i I understand that. Um, but, you know, if you think about in our own program, uh, 
something that I've already mentioned, the problem that mainstream collecting institutions don't really pay that much attention to uh, archives that are in their midst um, that are local collections, that there has been sort of this mm, longstanding love affair with rare materials that come from, um, let's say, you know, uh, parts of Europe. Um, so rare manuscripts, you know, that come from uh, the early modern part of um, part of European history. There's a lot of collecting, has been a lot of collecting going on, obviously, um, in that uh, realm. And not so much um, in, you know, as I said, locally, um, having to do with marginalized or oppressed peoples. And yet, what kind of story, you know, the, the problem here is the story that's getting told or the story that's not getting told um, as a result of the um, certain emphases in collecting. So, you know, when it comes to integrity, I think it really depends on what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Is it an access issue? You know, is it an issue about, uh, for example, uh, the fact that uh, when you are on the web and you're searching, you're, you're doing any kind of, you know, kind of um, activity on the web, whether it's social media, participation, searching or whatever, there are just, a, a, you know, less than a handful of um, technology companies running those kinds of sites, you know, that we all visit. What does that mean? That means that, you know, we're getting a very kind of narrow view of um, what the world looks like. And so the problem there is, how, what can we do to make the world much, the world of the web, I suppose, what can we do to make the web more representative of the world? You know, so that means English isn't the only language. And I realize that there are other areas of uh, the world where they're accessing, you know, their sites in different languages. But, you know, by and large, um, not every uh, language is represented on the web. And so what are the ways in which we can, you know, decolonize, I suppose, um, uh, the web and the knowledge, the public knowledge that gets distributed via the web? So uh, I, I see it you know, funding. I see the way that we fund at the foundation, certainly. This is not unusual, I think, at other uh, foundations, um, both private and public, as problem-based funding, that we are trying to solve, help solve a problem um, that is, that means a great deal to, um, to various sectors um, in our society. Whose voices do you think should be prioritized in deciding what those problems are? Are these the voices of senior scholars, associational executives, general public, politicians? We have a commitment to, to support the voices of those who have been historically underrepresented. And, um, you know, that may mean, uh, for example, the voices of um, the LGBTQ community. Um, so, and it's, I don't think a secret that that is a community that does not get that much uh, foundation funding or grant funding in general. That is a community that has struggled to um, to get the support of, um, of funders, although I think it is changing. But historically, they haven't received a lot of support. So, you know, I, I think it comes down to who hasn't been able to to enjoy, you know, um, the you know the kind of support um, and and um, you know funding that we can that we can give to an organization 
um, to a certain set of problems via um, an organization. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with those who have just not been represented properly. I don't know, you know, that we that would discount senior scholars. We're certainly a foundation that does not um, participate in political, at, you know, in legislation, for example. So we wouldn't um, uh, support um, politicians. But the senior scholar question is an interesting one because, you know, it has to do also with an area that we've tried to be attentive to, which is um, you know, promotion and tenure requirements and, um, uh, the things that, you know, are acceptable for promotion and tenure. And so senior scholars have actually, you know, because they have tenure, they have been, many of them have been at the forefront for, in something like digital humanities. They've, you know, got their tenure. And so they've been able to experiment, you know, with, uh, with DH methods and, um, approaches. And I, th I think that is starting to shift um, a little bit because of the increasing acceptance of digital scholarship, digital humanities um, in the academy. Still have, we still have a long way to go um, because of, you know, other issues, one of them being the challenging, um, uh, well, the challenges surrounding the persistence of, you know, such scholarship. It's not as if you write a book and the book gets published and, it sits on the library shelf or in a bookstore um, for as long as, you know, the library or bookstore exists. It's really about trying to figure out how do we help um, digital technologies persist? How do we help the code that may be supporting that digital project um, continue? So, um, but to, you know, kind of cap it, um, cap, the, cap my response, I think it does have a lot to do with um, understanding who hasn't been at the table um, to participate, how do we get them there, um, and uh, who's been historically underrepresented, <clears throat> just basically trying to advance those voices and um, those perspectives, you know, frankly, um, in, through our grant making. That's interesting uh, because it seems like you're trying to balance the who hasn't been at the table with still um, thinking uh, really, really hard about the the academic credentialing process, mm -hmm. um, because obviously it's been the lack of academic credentials that have kept some people and communities from having a seat at the table. So how do you balance mm -hmm. those things? So that's, yeah, that is an interesting question. And I would have to, you know, I guess, if we contextualize it a little more, you know, we can think about the library, libraries and archives profession, for example, and how um, when you go into a library, you may see um, staff who have more diversity. You know, you may see more black and brown staff who are not librarians uh, than black and brown librarians and those who have the, you know, the degrees. That's a real problem. And I... I am hoping that, you know, there's, there will be ways for our program to address it uh, much more intentionally than maybe we have in the past. It's a, uh, it's, an, it, it's, it's more than a pipeline problem, I feel. Um, I think it's also um, a challenge, you know, having to do with feeling included, um, feeling as if you belong, and 
you know, the profession as a whole, understanding that not that, you know, there shouldn't be credentials, but there has to be a way to bring more people into the profession and, and grow, you know, uh, the diversity of those who are credentialed. So that's one aspect. But, um, I, you know, I, I haven't really thought about too much about the, the credential, the credential versus non-credentials, um, in, you know, in this, um, sort of, um, framework, I suppose, of who's at the table, who's not at the table. Well, actually, here's another example. Going back to the community-based archives um, space, there are those archives are not always run by people who you know have a degree in library and information science that allowed them to have exposure to archives. Um, and that's not too unusual with archives, right? Because um, a lot of people who work in archives were actually historians, um, and so know the materials. But there can be some um, tension, you know, I think still in our profession about people who run community-based archives and may not be recognized by the premier, you know, um, society uh, for archivists. Um, I think you know, that's changing increasingly, um, uh, especially in the last, I would say, three to four years or so. But, you know, I think we do have to take into consideration that there are folks in our field who know the materials, know the content, um, have a passion for it, and and understand uh, what research and teaching and learning involved with those materials are about. And we need to recognize that, I think, even, even more, um, especially if we want more people, you know, we want to be more inclusive, and if we want to be able to promote a, a you know, truly um, diverse future, equitable future uh, for the profession. So I don't know if that answers the question or not. I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Maybe taking that similar idea, but in a, in a different direction, certainly thinking about not just long-term preservation, but public accessibility of, mm -hmm. of resources, of scholarship, uh, is is very important. What's the proper balance between scholarship as a as a product for other scholars and and scholarship as as something that's publicly accessible? And are you uh, thinking there about the tensions between open access scholarship and um, you know scholarship that requires a subscription? I'm thinking more of the audience, a scholarship that's intended more for an audience of scholars, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, promoting knowledge in that way versus scholarship that is uh, intended or presented for public consumption. Right, right. And so what is, how, how do I see the balance um, between those um, two? Well, I don't know that, you know, public knowledge, our public knowledge program um, is in favor of one over the other. Um, I think we try to, you know, we, we try to, um, to promote, uh, you know, we try to, try to promote something that is obviously accessible in terms of um, intellectual understanding. Um, but I think we also care about, um, scholarship that that experts um, produce that um, 
uh, and because they're experts that, <clears throat> that are um, familiar to them. Um, but, you know, as, as I'm answering this question, I feel like I'm thinking aloud. Um, I don't know that we've ever really supported, even as a scholarly communications program, scholarship that, um, or let's say this, approaches to scholarship or methodologies um, important to scholarship that would be that would be understood by a very um, small number of people, of scholars. I think we do try to have a broader impact, um, if I can use the word impact, um, when it comes to the kinds of grants that we support. I don't think we would be doing justice, especially in this, um, this new framework, um, if we were satisfying only a small number of scholars uh, understand, who understand you know, a very esoteric uh, subject or, or area. I think our, we want to be broader than that. And certainly, <clears throat> and certainly I would say that my program um, colleagues uh, or my colleagues in the other programs would, uh, would not be interested in, in serving just a small sector um, of uh, people who understand a very, you know, as I said, um, esoteric subject area. I think we all want to be able to to have um, um, effect a broader effect um, across uh, society. So um, yeah, I I think I you know I've, I've never been one to um, at least since I finished my own PhD program. I think I've not been one to um, be about oh well this is going to be something that is understood by five people in the world. Um, I think, you know, we want to be a program that um, has, that is more democratic in its um, impact and, and its um, use. When you look down the road, say a decade or so, what do you think will look different about the, the funding picture for the humanities and the arts writ large? I'm not talking about Mellon right now, but just in <laughs> right. general. Where do you see us headed? Oh gosh, that may, ta <laughs> may take me a little while to 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 think through and talk through. I, you know, you were, when just now with the previous question, and you're you know you're asking about the balance, you know, between public and um, and scholarly um, or public scholarship and something that's much more um, closed or narrow. I think it has to do with that. I think in the future, you know, um, we will likely see um, funding that is more expansive, more democratic, I would hope, um, much more attentive to the real world problems that we encounter um, in the humanities and the arts, such as access, you know, to materials, to content, to technology. But I also, you know, have wondered whether the... Um, Success in philanthropy is when we don't need so much philanthropy anymore. And that's not to say that we spend down, you know, our endowment. Um, it's basically to say, how can we work toward a future where organizations don't need to, there are, or, there, organizations don't need to depend so much on, on philanthropy. Um, and not every organization obviously does, but um, I'm talking about, you know, the, Sort of small to medium-sized progressive nonprofits that are in the arts and the and and the cultural heritage that are memory institutions that um, don't have the capacity of a large academic library. Let's say, you know, would there be some way that there would be a combination of public 
funding um, and you know whatever kind of revenue that kind of organization is able to to engender and um, some private uh, funding. I I think that the the future could be you know like I've sometimes wondered should the future be one in which organizations don't have to rely that much on private funding. It could be very interesting you know, to see that happen, in which case you know, it would be the public sector taking up a lot of that, um, in which case it would be you know, uh, perhaps um, uh, more support from um, local governments, um, more support from taxpayers. Um, but, um, but it is an interesting question. I mean, and sometimes I, I think success may be that you know, when you're not as needed um, as you as you are now, um, it could be kind of interesting. But you know, at the same time, that would mean that there is that the arts and the humanities um, are understood as essential. And if they're understood as essential, there will be a way to support them um, that maybe doesn't always mean private funding. Is, is that? I mean, I'd be curious to, you know, I wish that, I almost wish that we had a round table here because I think it's a question not just for me, but I feel like peer funders, um, you know, could really add to that. Yeah. And I think, I hope that some of them will listen to this and respond. <laughs> I'd love to hear more voices. What, following up on that in the other, the other regard, I mean, what do you, what are you afraid of that might derail that vision of the future of, the humanities and the arts. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, um, there. Even though uh, we currently have um, an administration that does not believe uh, in science, um, in I think sometimes, well, if you're on a higher education institution campus, right? If you're on a college campus, university campus, where are most of the grant dollars going to? They're going to the sciences. Um, and, uh, and uh, way fewer grant dollars are going to the arts and humanities. And so, you know, what I am afraid of is that trend continuing, despite, you know, the fact that, you know, we have an administration that isn't a supporter of, uh, of the sciences. And part of that is because um, I think the, the, the sort of intellectual tools that you need to do science, I mean, the critical thinking, the analysis, the um, judgment, evaluation, even integrity, um, all of those qualities I think one does get from participating in the arts and the humanities, and it's not recognized as much. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of like libraries and archives. They're the back end, you know, they're the behind the scenes kind of, uh, they work, you know, with the collections and everything. Of course, you see the collections through in books and, and all that, but the work of getting those books on the shelves or the work of getting a digital collection created is not visible work. And um, the value of the arts and humanities, you know, that critical thinking and uh, you know, evaluation or, or value judgment, integrity, all, the, all those kinds of things, all those qualities are also not necessarily visible, but they're important, you know, for um, experiments to be run and for um, surveys to be done, uh, any kind of exploration or investigation requires those kinds of traits or characteristics. So I guess, you know, that's my fear is that there's, because of the trend of, you know, grant dollars going so much to the sciences and so few to the 
arts and humanities, especially on a campus so few to the humanities, I worry that you know that's going to be represented in much less support, you know, or much less support for humanities majors, concentrations, um, departments, uh, and the like. And we've seen that. We're already starting to see that. My my worry is that we'll see it even more. Uh, and you know, and I would just it would just be such a loss um, to to have that happen. Patricia. Thank you so much. This has been very enlightening. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure others will as well. Oh, well, thank you so much, Darby. I really appreciate your inviting me. And, um, and I hope that we have an opportunity to meet in person someday and, and perhaps have a further conversation. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum.